Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We will be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 today, and this episode is entitled Peter and the Holiness of God. Last week, we talked about the opening to 1 Peter and the closing. And Peter's purpose for writing this letter that we are reading today is that Peter sees all of creation and all of existence as good, as a testament to the solidarity we share with God. And so Peter wraps up this letter by inviting people to stand fast in the grace of God, which we understood to be the ability to trust that the earth is a good place. From that opening, Peter then invites us to a response to the magnificence of creation, and we read about that in verse 13 to 16 of chapter 1. Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, discipline yourselves, set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. And then Peter quotes Leviticus by writing, For it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This passage is an invitation to holiness. And if you're like me, you hear the word holiness and you immediately think, boring. The reason I react to the word holiness with a thought of boredom is because if someone were to tell me, hey, Craig, do you want to come to my party? And I would say, yes, what kind of party is it? And they were to respond by saying, well, it's a holy party. I would say I'm out because I would imagine a 38 minute prayer happening at this party. I would imagine a detailed discussion on superfluous doctrine that doesn't really matter in the long run. And so if somebody says, hey, do you want to come to my holy party? My reaction is always, nah, I'm good. And so when Peter invites us to be holy as a response to all of creation, I got to tell you that I'm a little bit trepidatious of these words. To show where that trepidation comes from, I'd like for us to look at three different parts of Scripture in relation to 1 Peter. We're going to look at Exodus, and then Leviticus, and then the Gospel of Mark. So let's begin in Exodus chapter 20, which is where God hands the Ten Commandments to Moses. And I'd like for us specifically to look at the third commandment, which is found in verse 7. God writes as a commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Christians today interpret this commandment as a prohibition against the phrase, oh my God. Whatever you do, do not say, oh my God, because when you say it in vain like that, what you are essentially doing is you are taking the holy name of God and placing it in casual human conversation. In other words, Christians today have this idea that our casual human conversations and interactions with each other are not holy enough for the name of God. So we shouldn't say phrases like, oh my God, during casual conversation, because that casual conversation is an unholy container for the holy name. 
This commandment was recently in national news. And whenever anything from the Bible is in national news, we like to talk about it on the podcast and at church. What happened was the president of the United States, Donald Trump, was at a campaign rally in July in North Carolina. And during that campaign rally, he was telling a story about interacting with a businessman that didn't like Donald Trump. And so these are his words at that rally in Greenville, North Carolina. He says to the businessman, you don't like me and I don't like you. I never have liked you and you never have liked me. But you're going to support me as your next president because you're a rich guy. And if you don't support me as your next president, you're going to be so goddamn poor, you're not going to believe it. Donald Trump's language is what many Christians consider to be a violation of the third commandment. So much so that one of Donald Trump's closest advisors, the Reverend Robert Jeffress, had to make an official public statement about Donald Trump's words. He writes, I certainly do not condone taking the Lord's name in vain. There is a whole commandment dedicated to prohibiting that. I think it's very offensive to use the Lord's name in vain. I can take just about everything else except that. Now, there's two points we need to make in response to the Reverend Robert Jeffress's response to Donald Trump's offensive words. The first point is unrelated to what we are talking about in 1 Peter. The second point is very much related to what we're talking about in 1 Peter. So the first point is this. The way that the Reverend Robert Jeffress talks about Donald Trump and the ability to take just about everything else except the one time he broke the commandment gives people the impression that Donald Trump has only broken one commandment in his lifetime. May I remind you of the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment is you shall not covet. Donald Trump openly coveted all of Greenland, which is a severe violation of the 10th commandment, right? I make this point to remind all of us who listen to the podcast, Donald Trump has definitely broken more than one commandment. I think we can all agree on that, right? Now, the second point is related to what we're talking about. Because Robert Jeffress does not break away from Donald Trump or condemn Donald Trump's actions often. But this use of this name in an unholy container was something that he had to step up and condemn publicly. Why? Because we have this idea that our casual human conversations and interactions and even campaign speeches are not holy enough to contain the name of God. So from Exodus, we then move to the next book of the Bible, Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is all about the systematizing of religion, which is about as exciting as it sounds. But all of Leviticus revolves around this holy structure, which is the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is a tent that has an outer court with an altar and a fountain, and then two inner rooms, the holy place and the most holy place, which are separated by a very thick curtain. Now, the most holy place is where the ancient Israelites believed the name and presence of God rested and resided. So if you were walking among the Israelites in the wilderness and you were to ask them, where is God? They would respond by saying God is right there and they would point at the tabernacle. Now, because you have God in a room, 
there becomes a question of who is worthy to approach God in this room. So what Leviticus outlines in chapter 16 is the process for what it takes for a human being to enter the presence of God in the most holy place. This can only happen one day a year during the Day of Atonement, and the most religious human being on the planet, the high priest of Israel, is the only person who can go before the name of God as long as they bring a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. When you look closely at this idea, Christians have an idea that only the holiest religious human being is worthy to stand in the holy presence of God. And when they stand there before God, they have to say, we are sorry. Which brings us to the third passage of scripture in the gospel of Mark. Now, Mark, like all of the other Gospels, records the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, just about everyone outside the Christian faith hears the Christian story and asks the question, why did Jesus have to die? Now, Christians overwhelmingly respond to this question by giving the answer, well, Jesus had to die for your sins. And then shortly after that, Christians follow up that answer with a question. Do you then accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Now, most people outside the Christian tradition ask the question, okay, well, what if I'm a pretty good person? Do I still need to be saved from the goodness that I am? And Christians respond by saying, no, 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 no. Every human being needs to be saved because every human being is sinful. You see, Christians have this idea about the holy, that if you are a human being, then you are unholy and you need to be saved. And when we look at the stories and the ideas that we glean from Exodus and Leviticus and Mark, we have this idea that our humanity is in opposition to holiness. Think what comes to mind when I tell you to think of a holy person. Usually, you'll think of someone who abstains from something, whether it's something they refuse to eat or drink or the sex they refuse to have. In our minds, holy people deny their humanity in an effort to grow closer to the divine. And this is an idea that Christians have had for centuries. But I also think it's an idea that requires a closer look at the texts that we just studied. Specifically, if we go all the way back to Exodus, to that third commandment, we read these words, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If you look closely at your Bible, specifically verses like this one, if you look at the word Lord, all of the letters of the word Lord are capitalized. Now, they are all capitalized, but they are in a different font size, so the capital L is taller than the O-R-D. Now, when we read this in English, we assume that this word Lord is translated from the Hebrew word Adon, which means Lord. 
But if you were to go and look at the original Hebrew scriptures, you would not find a don where we translate Lord. Instead, you would find a name of four letters. Now, these four letters translate into the English language as Y-H-W-H, which raises the question, why do we translate Y-H-W-H to Lord? There are a couple reasons of this, but the primary reason is that the name Y-H-W-H is too holy to utter. So because of this, Jews, when they were reading from the scripture, whenever they would come across the four letters, Y-H-W-H, rather than saying the name out loud, they would instead say a substitute name, which was Adonai, which means the Lord. Now, this went on for centuries until the name Adonai began to take place of Y-H-W-H. And every time they would hear the name Adonai, the Jews would respond by saying, oh, this name is holy. And so they stopped saying the name Adonai, and now they read Hashem, which means the name. So whenever you read scripture and you come across a capital L followed by three smaller capital letters of O-R-D, you are not reading Adon or Adonai there. You are reading the placeholder for the name of God. All of this is done in an effort to prevent a reader from using the name of God in vain or using it too casually. It's all set up as a protective measure so that you and I can keep the third commandment when we read scripture. Now, while that helps us understand why scripture is the way that it is, I think it actually shortchanges what's happening with the name of God. Because there is an ancient Jewish midrash that taught that this name was never intended to be said. Rather, this name was intended to be breathed. Let me show you what I mean by that. Whenever you come across LORD in all caps, you are reading what is better translated as YHWH. Now I say YHWH because it's translated from four Hebrew consonants, and those four consonants are Yod, He, Vav, He. This Midrash teaches that you aren't supposed to say those consonants, you are supposed to breathe them because they are the sound of breathing. So with that in mind, the name of God sounds like this. Yod, hey, Every moment we inhale and exhale is saturated in the holiness of God's name. Whenever you exercise, whenever you work, whenever you make love, whenever you laugh, whenever you breathe, and whenever you cry, you are saying the name of God. And this name is the holiest name in all of humanity. If you believe that this is what the original name of God means, then all of a sudden the third commandment doesn't become a restriction, but instead becomes a blessing. 
To not take the name of the Lord your God in vain means that you and I shall not live without a purpose. It means that we can live with meaning and beauty and hope and trust that there is a point to us living because we have the name of God with us in every breath of our existence. What Exodus teaches us is that every moment we inhale and exhale is saturated in the holiness of God's name. Which brings us to Leviticus. Now, as I said earlier, Leviticus is very difficult to read until you get to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 is an oasis in the middle of the doldrums of Leviticus. And specifically, Leviticus 19 has the most important verse in all of Leviticus. It's verse 2 of chapter 19, and it's the verse that Peter quotes in his letter. And we read it here when God speaks to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, hearing all of this holy talk, we assume that God's going to tell Moses how to be religious. Therefore, God can look at all the people in the world and realize who are doing the most religious activities. And God can say, these are the people who prioritize these religious exercises so that I can know they're devoted to me. But we don't get religious exercises in Leviticus 19. We get something else entirely. God tells Moses what it means to be holy like God. God says, I am the Lord your God who is holy. I want you to be holy like me. Here's how you do it. To all the people who own land, when you are harvesting your grain during the harvest season, do not harvest all the grain that belongs to you. Instead, leave the corners and the edges for those who do not own land. Leave the corners and edges of your field for the poor and the powerless so that immigrants who come into your country will always have something to eat. That is what it means to be holy like me, says God. God then continues talking to Moses by saying, you have the deaf and the blind among you. You should make accommodations for them among your society so that they can fully participate in who you are. Take care of the deaf and blind and you will be holy just like I am, says God. You want to be holy, God asks? Well, then let me tell you how to be holy. You have the elderly among you. Now, you may be tempted as a society to be fascinated by what makes you bigger, faster, and stronger. But once the elderly become weak, if you are a holy people, then you will take care of them. You'll make provisions for them. And young people will seek them out for their wisdom because they have learned lots in their life that is worth sharing. You want to be holy like me, asks God? Let me tell you how to treat immigrants who seek refuge among you. If you want to be holy, then welcome the immigrant, the alien, the refugee into your country and make it indistinguishable between yourselves and the immigrant as to who actually belongs in the country. That is what holy people look like. And I, being God, want you to be holy like me. 
If we take Leviticus 19 seriously, what we learn about holiness is that we are holy people whenever we value people over profit. Whenever we care more about our brothers and sisters who are from different socioeconomic backgrounds and different education levels and different countries, whenever we care about them more than our bottom line, we are living as a holy people. That's what Leviticus 19 teaches us. Which brings us back to Mark's gospel and the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, in Mark's gospel, we read about how Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus dies on the cross. Now, it's here that Mark adds a rather interesting note to the story. Mark goes about a 15-minute walk away from Golgotha, where Jesus is crucified, to the temple on top of Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The temple of Jesus' day was a magnificent and opulent structure that was based on the design of the tabernacle all the way back in Leviticus. So while this temple is more permanent than the tabernacle, there is still an outer court with an altar and a fountain, and then a structure with two rooms in it, the holy place and the most holy place, separated by a very thick curtain. And it's in the most holy place that the Jews believe the name of God resides. So Mark tells us the story about how Jesus dies on a cross, and at that exact moment, the curtain between the most holy place and the holy place is torn in two from top to bottom. Now it's here that Christians have offered a rather poor explanation of what this means. The poor explanation I've heard is that God wanted to tell all of humanity that the sacrificial system was no longer needed. Give me a break. <laughs> because the actual implications of this are far greater. The curtain represents an idea that there is something between our humanity and the divinity of God. And the curtain is there for our protection because if we are exposed to the holiness of God without being pure, well then, oh, it's going to be a short story for the rest of our lives. But when Jesus Christ, who Christians profess to be the Son of God, participates in the most unholy of all events, death, it is at that moment that a symbol is removed and we are reminded that the curtain is torn and there is nothing separating us from God. In other words, Mark teaches us that everything is holy. And that includes death. Something that all humans experience, but is viewed as the antithesis of God. So when you look closely at these three stories from Exodus and Leviticus and Mark, there is this Christian idea that is very dominant, that our humanity is in opposition to holiness. But when you look closely at those texts, you realize that none of them actually support this idea, so we need to get rid of it. And when you look at Exodus talking about how important and holy it is that we breathe, when you look at Leviticus talking about how we can be holy as long as we take care of people who are in need and as long as we prioritize people over profit, and we look at the story of Jesus with his curtain being torn in two, revealing that there is nothing that separates God from humanity, 
What these three stories are actually saying is that holiness is ingrained in our humanity. The very thing that we've been told keeps us in opposition with God is actually the thing that ties us to who God is. And so the more that we breathe and the more that we practice compassion to other human beings, and the more that we grieve at funerals, the closer we are to God. I believe that Peter supports this idea when he writes in 1 Peter, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. In other words, Peter is asking us to be fully human. And I know, I know it can be very difficult to be a human being at times. I've struggled just like you. And I promise next week we're going to talk about the difficulties of life and how it can be hard to trust that this earth is a good place in the face of suffering and how we can look at other human beings and say, really? Holiness is ingrained in our humanity? Then why do humans keep making such a mess of things? But I think that if we trust that holiness is ingrained in our humanity, it can elicit a response that I think is always worth pursuing in what it means to be holy. So to tell you about that, I'd like to tell you about the seven new wonders of the world. Now, there were seven ancient wonders of the world, but only one is left standing, the Great Pyramids of Giza, and the other six have all been lost to time and space and greed. However, there was recently a poll conducted and there were seven new world wonders that came around and you can go and travel to these new world wonders and see some magnificent structures across the globe. Due to modern technology, you can also review these seven new wonders of the world on Yelp and let people know what you actually think about these seven new wonders of the world. So if you were to go to the Great Wall of China, you may hesitate when you read a review by Stee13, which gave it one out of five stars. Stee13 writes this about the Great Wall of China. He says, this was an incredible disappointment. When you get there, it is really a pile of sloppily laid bricks. From China, we can go to India to the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal is such an iconic, magnificent structure unless you're Caliphon, who on Yelp gave the Taj Mahal one out of five stars. According to Caliphon, he writes, this looks better in the pictures. <laughs> From India, we move to Mexico to Chichen Itza on the Yucatan Peninsula. This is a very moving structure and complex and a monumental achievement of the Mayan people. However, reviewer Undead Beauty is unimpressed. She gave it one out of five stars. In her review, she writes, it's not worth it. The tour guide on the bus was rude to me and not funny. They were supposed to offer a soda or beer on the ride back, but they didn't offer beer at all. <laughs> From Mexico, we moved to Italy to the Coliseum. Reviewer Jayhorn looked at it and said, nah, one star out of five. Creepy place, he writes. Don't like to see the persecution of Christians. It's a creepy place. Now I have to laugh here because I want to know what Jayhorn thought about the Colosseum before he took the tour. I imagine Jayhorn being on the tour and the tour guide talking about the persecutions of Christians and Jayhorn saying, what? They persecuted Christians here? 
I thought they played soccer. Why would they persecute Christians? And he comes away and gives it a one-star review. From Italy, we move to Jordan, to Petra, where a reviewer named Gisha USA gave it one out of five stars. And in this review, she writes, the necklaces here are defective and poorly made. <laughs> From Jordan, we go to Peru, to Machu Picchu. And the reviewer, WW gives Machu Picchu one out of five stars. And her review begins with just two words, just don't. The last of the seven new wonders is Christ the Redeemer statue that overlooks Rio de Janeiro. And the reviewer, Joanne Kay, gave it one out of five stars. She writes, it is disastrous. There is no crowd control at this monument. If it is a clear day, do a private helicopter ride. That is what I will do the next time I am in Rio. <laughs> Apparently, Joanne can afford private helicopter rides when there's too many people around. <laughs> Now, why do I tell you about the seven new wonders of the world and these one-star reviews? The reason why is because there is something wrong when we stand in the shadows of wonders and we respond with pettiness. Can you imagine going to Petra and not being able to see the magnificent limestone structure but instead, all you're focused on is a defective necklace? Can you imagine going to the Great Wall of China and seeing a crooked line and saying, eh, looks pretty sloppy to me, and not being able to experience the overwhelming structure that is the Great Wall? Can you imagine going to Chichen Itza and being mad you didn't get your beer? There is something that speaks to the spiritual poverty of the moment. When you go all the way around the world on some amazing technology, and you arrive at these places that have somehow, someway stood the test of time and ages, and you just say, eh, looks better in the pictures. But there is something human if we can respond to these wonders with the right response. In other words, something's right when we stand in the shadows of wonders and respond with actual wonder. That's why they're named the seven new wonders of the world. They're hoping and they most likely will elicit wonder from the human being who sees or stands in their shadow. Now, wonder is a bit of a sticky word, and I'd like to use the dictionary definition because I love the dictionary's definition of wonder. According to the new Oxford American Dictionary, wonder is a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. Now, it's easy to point at the seven new wonders of the world and say, ah, Craig, if I could just travel as much as I wanted, I would live a life of wonder all the time. It's easy to live in wonder when you have an unlimited travel budget. But the world's greatest travelers will respond by saying, oh, no, 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 no. The best kind of travel is the one where you return home and you have a new appreciation for the wonder that is happening 
all around you. So when I read Peter's invitation to holiness, and I think about what holiness means in our ordinary yet extraordinary everyday life, to me, the best definition of holiness I can give you is this. Holiness is unmitigated wonder in the opportunity of being human. And the ability to hold all of our humanity and all that it entails with surprise and admiration is the response that holiness demands. The great rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel once wrote, never once in my life did I ask God for success or wisdom or power or fame. I asked for wonder and God gave it to me. My brothers and sisters, may we lead holy lives. May we lead lives filled with unmitigated wonder and the opportunity of being human. And may you and I discover that holiness is anything except boring. May you see and embrace the holy name of Jesus Christ in all. Of